Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode five. Have you wanted to explore using Python with electronics? CircuitPython's a great platform to get started with. This week, I talk with Thea Flowers. Thea's been creating several hardware projects that are based around CircuitPython. She talks about how she taught herself to design and prototype printed circuit boards, and I ask her about how someone would get started with CircuitPython. We also discuss several of her open source projects. She was the conference co-chair for Pi Cascades, and I asked her about how people could get involved in volunteering for conferences. We also talk about building diversity in the community. This episode was recorded at an earlier date, and so much has changed in the last several weeks. I asked Thea to come back for an update about her projects and about a recent honor bestowed upon her. So let's get started. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Thea. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So why don't you give us a little bit of your programming background? Yes, it was a long time ago. I got into programming because of video games, actually. When I was like 12 and 13, I wanted nothing more than to make video games, basically. So I started programming in this tool called Game Maker. Yeah. Which is very different now than it was then. But like back then, it was made by one guy. And it had this like drag and drop sort of interface for creating games. But you could also program in this scripting language called Game Maker language or GML. Okay. Yeah, so I ended up learning GML and then eventually like made a couple of little games that I, I'm never going to show anybody ever. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and then from there I, I learned like, you know, C and C++ and a couple of other languages. And that was all in high school, basically. And when I was when I was graduating from high school, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to go to college. So I sort of like weaseled my way into the industry, as I like to say. <laughs> I ended up after failing to become a famous musician. I ended up <laughs> working at a little web design firm in my hometown, writing PHP. Okay. Yep. So that was fun. From there, I, I went to consulting and then eventually landed at Google. Yeah, we were talking a little bit just before we started. I just did a recording with Brett Slatkin and you were mentioning a little bit about your indirect experience with him through uh, App Engine. Yeah, so before I started at Google, I was working at a consultancy and we did a lot of stuff with Google Cloud stuff at the, at the time. We would migrate companies that were using like old school Lotus Notes oh, wow. or Microsoft products or something like that over to Google Cloud. And inevitably, all of these companies have some kind of like custom software that they would, they would have that was built around their existing systems, be it Lotus Notes or whatever. And so I worked on this team who specialized in porting those apps or recreating those apps onto Google Cloud Platform. Yeah. So I get to do a lot of App Engine and a lot of Python, got heavily involved in the in the App Engine community because of that, and definitely have experienced indirectly a lot of Red Slacken's work. So, <laughs> yeah. Did you approach Google or did they approach you? I approached Google. I was working at this consultancy and working a lot and not getting paid very much. And I also wanted a change from Atlanta, which was where I was living at the time. You know, I want to go out west because everyone wants to leave their hometown, right? Sure. 
Yes. I interviewed at a couple of companies and Google was was one of the top on the list. And after 10 interviews, wow, I, I convinced them to hire me. So nice. So what are you working on currently at Google? Yeah, so I transferred to the Flutter team last year, the Flutter developer relations team. So at the moment, I am doing Flutter stuff. So I'm programming in Dart and creating examples and all kinds of cool stuff for Flutter. For those of you who don't know what Flutter is, it's a cross-platform UI toolkit, which is really, really cool. Let's you design apps and run them on iOS, Android, and we have web coming very soon, if not already launched. I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with that. And um, we have desktop support in beta, so or alpha or something like that. But it's coming. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. So your Python background started with the uh, App Engine. Oh, it actually started way before that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So, you know, I mentioned I wanted to make games in, in high school. That's what I did with my programming, basically. Like any sort of programming I was doing was related to games. Okay. So at, at one point, I wrote a, a 2D game engine, and I wanted a way to have to have it build every time that I, I made a commit and subversion. Just this is how old, old that is. Yeah. I was still using subversion. Git didn't exist yet. I built a build bot using Python way back then. And it was great. And I think it even used like, because like Jinja 2 didn't exist yet, right? So like I used like Cheetah templates. I think that was what, what it was. Oh, wow. I'm not familiar with that. It's it's old school. So yeah, I used Python back when I was a teenager. Okay. You know, I did PHP for a while. And then, yeah, when I moved to this consultancy, I was like, they were all using Java at the time, which Java is a fine language or whatever, but it's not always a fine language for like rapid iteration and like responding quickly to customer demands when they change their mind. So I convinced them to try Python and it worked out really well for me, I think. Yeah. And since then, you've been, along with getting your position at Google, you've been doing a lot of open source projects. And yeah, tell me about one of the ones you're working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. I've kind of taken a step back from a lot of my sort of bigger open source engagements Okay, for, for my health. Really, like, kind of, you know, turned down the knob on, like, how much I'm involved in a lot of different things that aren't projects that I sort of originated. Sure. So I'd say, like, my, my biggest two open source projects right now are Nox. So that's N-O-X. And Nox is very similar to Tox, but it uses Python as the configuration instead of any files. It seems to be, seems to be doing well. I am not the only maintainer, which makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's really great. And I never really expected that to like get any adoption outside of like my personal projects and like the projects I had a say in at Google that that use it. But yeah, it's it's been going really well. And the other like open source thing that I'm kind of still sort of heavily involved in is conducthotline.com. Okay which lets events sort of create a phone number that attendees can call to reach event coordinators. And it maintains anonymity and all this cool stuff. And it's it's really useful tool. And I, I offered that for free to conferences to use. I went to Pike, Colorado, and I believe they were using it there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really useful tool, and it's it's so simple to set up, and it makes, it makes everyone's lives a little bit easier. And beyond that, I am contributing to CircuitPython a bit and uh, really, really love that community. It's it's one of the one of the best open source communities I've ever been a part of. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into CircuitPython with you. Just to take a step back, though, can we talk a little bit about Knox? Sure. 
if somebody was like, okay, I want to get more into testing, you know, they might be somewhat familiar with this tool, Tox, or even maybe we start there. What does what does Tox provide? Yeah, I actually did a wonderful like PyCon talk about this. You could actually go look at my talk from 2019. Okay, cool. All right, we'll link to that. Yeah, that goes into a lot more depth here. But like the basic description is like if you're doing something over and over again, like if you're having to create a virtual environment, install PyTest, install your dependencies, and then run PyTest, and you're like you're just doing that over and over again, like yeah, Tox and Nox can like automate that. Okay. So instead of running all of those little commands and like trying to remember every step, you would just run Tox and it would do that for you. And because it can automate that, you could actually automate those steps in different Pythons. So you can run your test against Python 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, 3.8, and so on, so that you can make sure that your, you know, your program or library or whatever works on every Python version that you want to support, which is really cool. Okay. I could see how that would be really vital as somebody creating an open source tool that you need to make sure that it supports a wider audience or even the code base at Google or some of the projects you're doing there. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And so Knox, you build on top of Talk somewhat. It's an entirely, what I like to call like a different implementation of the same idea, right? Okay, sure. It tries to solve the same problem just in a different way. And I think that Tox is great if it works for your use case, but if you know you're trying to color a little bit outside the lines with Tox, it becomes increasingly more difficult, like exponentially. But with Nox, like if you if you start coloring outside the lines of Tox, like try Nox because Nox is going to let you color outside those lines a little bit easier because of the way that it's designed. Okay, so it's it's kind of like it's allowing you to break the abstractions a lot more easily, basically. Yeah, I'm very interested in this idea of like. Uh not having to go through a checklist of <laughs> commands every time to test something. So Yeah, me too. I um <laughs> I do not like that. <laughs> yeah. How'd you get involved with CircuitPython? Yes. So after I switched over to the Flutter team, I stopped doing Python every day at work. Okay. Which was a big change for me, right? Like I love Python. <laughs> I've I've been programming Python for like a decade now. I was like, okay, I I don't want to lose my connection to the Python community, basically. Like, I was lucky enough to, like, make my job involve Python for a while. But now I, like, kind of lost that. And I was like, okay, what do I do? How do I get back into being connected to the Python community without having to do it every day at work? And I've I've been getting involved and interested in electronics for about a year before this. I built a synthesizer using the sound chip from the Sega Genesis. And I programmed that in C and C++. And I I know C and C++, but it wasn't a fun experience. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, I was like, well, there's this thing called CircuitPython. Maybe I should check that out for my synth projects. So I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like the the ability to just sort of edit a file and save it and have that be your microcontroller code is awesome like it's so much so much of a better loop than like opening up the arduino ide and compiling waiting for compilation waiting for it to flash things all this stuff it's it's great and um also it's python and i get to continue writing python right yeah so like that's kind of how i i got interested in it and then from there i ended up where i am now which is like designing two separate synthesizer projects using circuit python so yeah cool that rapid implementation is something that I think everybody loves, you know, in some ways about Python in general, like the idea that it doesn't have to compile, 
when I talked to Brett Slacken about it a little bit, he was saying that's one of the things he really liked when he started using Python at, at Google is like setting up all these things that manage all the servers. And it was nice to be able to iterate quickly. And I could see that with electronics, you know, moving to something that's even more in a, the physical world right in front of you and being able to send the code to it and <laughs> have it run. You know, something I'm very excited about too, because I, I dabble in electronics, but I haven't gotten into MicroPython or CircuitPython at all. And I'm just sort of, that's why I'm I'm super interested. It's like I built guitar pedals and you know things like that, and I really want to <laughs> awesome try to learn how to program <laughs> this stuff. So that's something I was interested in a little bit about. Was okay, so MicroPython and you know what's the difference between that and CircuitPython? Yeah, so that like this has kind of been talked to death, but like so has it? Okay, sorry. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's fine. So like MicroPython is sort of the one of the original projects that tried to bring Python to small devices. Okay. You know, it, it's it's great. It's a, it's a wonderful project and it has its its own goals. CircuitPython is a fork of that. It's a little bit more education-friendly, right? Like the goals of, of CircuitPython are explicitly different from MicroPython. And the idea is to make CircuitPython very approachable to beginners. And there's a lot of changes that have been made to to that end, right? Like, one of the major differences you'll notice if you switch between MicroPython and CircuitPython is that MicroPython doesn't really adhere to standard library conventions. So like, there's not like an OS module that's emulated. Oh, okay. And so on and so forth. Whereas like CircuitPython is explicitly designed to be as compatible with upstream CPython as possible so that you can port code between the two. And it kind of helps a lot because there's a lot of circuit python code that can also run on like the raspberry pi with c python right so that's kind of the idea is like let's make it approachable and let's make it as education friendly as we possibly can and i think that that's a really good goal yeah i was reading a little bit about it and the idea that when you attach this hardware to your computer that it can just appear like a connected drive yeah yeah that's awesome okay cool if you were going to get one of these boards, do you have a suggestion as to where someone would start? Like what hardware board would be a good choice? Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of the ultimate starter is like the Circuit Playground Express, right? It has so much stuff on it. It has like a ring of LEDs. It has it has a microphone. It has a little speaker. It has, I think they have accelerometers and temperature sensors. Like there's a bunch of stuff just already on the board for you to play with. So you don't even have to wire anything up to start experimenting with code and like sensors and like the physical world basically yeah so i think that's a really great option and you know i i definitely see people's faces light up when they when they get the leds you know (laughs) showing different colors and stuff like that it's really really wonderful figuratively and literally (laughs) that's cool yeah exactly and you know the other ones that i i would recommend is like any of like the pie badges they have little screens on them and like buttons and stuff. So you can, if you're more of a visual person, you can actually, you know, display things on the screen and make them move around and like even make little games on them if you want to. So I think either of those are a great option. You know, the the Circuit Playground Express is going to give you a little bit more to play with out of the box, but the Pie Badge is going to give you a screen. So, you know. Nice. Maybe either or or both, you know, whatever you want to get into. Yeah, I'm probably going to get both. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're not very expensive at all. I think there's a, a low-cost version of the pipe badge that's like $25 or something. So, What are some of the things that you, as far as like projects, that you are excited about in CircuitPython? 
Oh, that's such a big question. Okay. There's so many like really interesting projects going on. I, not to get into any specific projects, but like I am personally really excited about the Bluetooth stuff that's coming or is is sort of present in the the Circuit Python five. Okay. Which I think is in release candidate right now. So it should like maybe by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have the final release of Circuit Python five for the Bluetooth. Okay. But like it's awesome because it lets Circuit Python devices not only communicate with like phones, computers and stuff, but communicate with each other. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think there's all kinds of really cool stuff. My friend Nina is adapting a project from from Sophie Sophie Wong, maybe? Yeah. That is like a, a jacket that has like like LEDs on it and then like 3D printed little gems covering the LEDs, which is really cool, like diffusers. And she's using CircuitPython for that. And having Bluetooth as the ability to like control that from your phone is really powerful. Or, you know, being able to detect other Bluetooth devices and react to those is really cool as well. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Yeah, yeah. I saw that Nina's doing a talk at PyCon. I think it's in, the, in a similar space here too with uh, CircuitPython. I know she's done a variety of Twitch streams and other stuff uh, showing some of the projects she's working on. Yeah, yeah, her streams are great. You should definitely check them out if you haven't seen them. Yeah, I'm going to link to that. I'm thinking about the, the Bluetooth thing. Um, would that be possible to send audio across also then? Um, I think so. I haven't had a chance to play with that yet, so I can't speak authoritatively on that, but... Sure. I, I can't see why not. Right. You know, CircuitPython definitely isn't as fast as C or C++. So if there's any sort of, I guess, limitation, it would just be speed. But we have much faster boards coming soon. So that's a problem that can be solved. Awesome. What are other things that you'd like to see improved in CircuitPython? Yeah. You know, Adafruit actually did a really awesome thing um, at the beginning of the year where they asked people in the CircuitPython community what you love about CircuitPython and what you would like to see improved, which is like such a cool thing to do. Yeah. And a lot of us wrote blog posts or sent emails or whatever in response to this. So you can actually go and read my blog where I go into a lot of detail on this. But I think I had like two really big things. And like the, the first of them was debugging. Okay. Right now, like CircuitPython is kind of like print debugging is what you get, right? You brought up Nina. Nina actually has a whole talk about like how awesome debuggers are. And she kind of like really sells the idea of like, you should use an interactive debugger and because it's it's really going to save you a lot of trouble in the end. And for me, doing these synthesizer projects, I really do miss having an interactive step debugger on CircuitPython. And like print debugging is really tough sometimes as you start building more and more advanced projects. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would love to see like the equivalent of PDB basically on CircuitPython. And, you know, of course, have like integration with that into VS Code or something like that would be amazing. But yeah, I think that's probably my biggest gripe is that. (laughs) But the other thing that I would like to see is making it easier for me to write native modules. So to write stuff in C Hmm. and load that in to a CircuitPython project. Okay. It's possible today, but what you have to do is basically fork CircuitPython and then add code like in the compiled CircuitPython side of things. I try to upstream everything that I can, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense for me to upstream my, you know, audio algorithm to CircuitPython just for one board, right? Like that's, that seems like I'm like putting an unnecessary burden on the CircuitPython maintainers to keep track of my silly audio code, right? So I would like to be able to keep that code separately, but still load it into a CircuitPython project. Yeah. 
that's my other big thing. And, you know, I am happy to roll up my sleeves and help those two things happen. So, so you were mentioning that earlier, how CircuitPython would need additional, for lack of a better word, tooling to be able to do more with audio. And so that might end up, you know, I guess in the end, maybe being like a fork where it's like to do these type of projects, you might need this particular hardware in this version of CircuitPython to have the low-level C stuff to be able to speak with audio and do synthesis and stuff like that. I mean, I would love to, for that to not be a fork, right? Like, Okay, it being built in. Yeah, anything that I think is general enough to be upstreamed, I want to upstream, right? Like, I firmly believe in open source and working together for, for common goals. So, you know, like, there's a bunch of different CircuitPython hardware and they don't all have the same capabilities and we already have sort of accommodations for that. Okay. But, like, I meant more specifically, like, if I'm going to implement some sort of, you know, effects processor and use CircuitPython as the brain, I don't want to have to, you know, upstream my delay effect to to CircuitPython, right? Whereas like upstreaming the the things that let you play back audio or record audio or process it or whatever, that can live in CircuitPython. It's just the the individual like special implementations for one specific product. Right. It's something that doesn't feel quite like it should, you know, be upstream. That's something that's interesting because that that's where you have to figure out where that dividing line is between you know, something that makes sense to, to be upstream. Yeah, totally. You did a couple of posts and things about working toward consensus. Is that part of that in this sense? Like having to, I guess, what, what is it like trying to work toward consensus with a, a group of people in open source? <laughs> well, with CircuitPython, it's really easy. Everyone's pretty easygoing and... Um, oh, good. You know, yeah, so th- there's no trouble. <laughs> I think that particular blog post that you're talking about I wrote when I was working with the Python Packaging Working Group and uh, the Python Packaging Authority, it is very hard to drive consensus with that group of people. And that's not to say anything bad about those people. They're all great people. It's just there's so many different use cases for Python packaging, right? Whereas like CircuitPython is sort of like, you know, it, it runs on microcontrollers. It's, it has a very clear use case, right? And very clear goals. Okay, sure. Whereas... Python packaging has like sort of grown organically over the years to accommodate so many different use cases. And it's kind of really hard to balance all of those concerns, right? And, you know, sort of everyone has strong opinions, but their strong opinions come from their experience and their specific use cases. And they don't always match up with other people's use cases. And when you're doing the job that I was doing, which was maintaining the documentation, packaging.python.org, it is so very difficult to figure out what to write and what to recommend because you have to caveat a lot of things and you have to drive some level of consensus among this group of people who all have very different use cases and very different ideas about what should be front and center because everyone wants their use case to be front and center, right? But like, that's not how we should do things. And yeah, so that's like, that sort of thing is very hard to do. And I think in terms of my tips for driving consensus in that sort of situation is to like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things you can do, like use data, document everything that you can. Like, you know, everyone has these different use cases and they're not always stated. Get an understanding, talk to them. Be like, hey, where are you coming from? What sort of things do you actually do with this thing? And write it down. And then once you have an, a grasp of where everyone's sort of coming from, then you can be like, okay, here's some common things that we can all agree on and then go from there. And the other thing is like, 
for packeting.python.org, I was like, what is actually the most common use case for Python developers, right? Is it packaging projects? It's not. A very small percentage of Python developers actually create packages and upload them to the Python package index. It's installing packages. And what are most people installing packages with? Are they installing it with their operating system? Are they installing it with Conda? Are they installing it with PIP? I drilled into those and said, okay, most people are, are installing packages with PIP. So let's put that front and center. And having that data and like sort of having enough sort of data and credibility and documentation to back up what you're trying to do when you're driving consensus is really good. And the other thing is there's this psychological trick that's actually a good psychological trick where you get the people involved, right? People feel better about decisions if they have a part like a, if they feel like they have a say in it, right? So when you say, hey, I want to put PIP front and center, what things should I show? Is like this toddler trick of, you know, asking a toddler, do you want to eat French fries or do you want to eat chicken nuggets? Instead of asking, do you want to eat dinner, right? Like you, you give them two choices of dinner and not the choice of whether or not to have dinner. So it's not a choice of, do I put this front and center? It's, I'm going to put this front and center. What specific things should I talk about? And building collaboration helps build consensus because everyone feels better about something if they have some level of ownership and involvement in it. So, yeah, that totally makes sense. I that's even a problem with my wife as far as dinner. <laughs> <laughs> have to have choices. Yeah, I am. I am that woman. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I don't know the problem of choice. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You said you were working on two different hardware projects in, inside of CircuitPython right now. Yep. Can you tell me about those? Absolutely. So do you want to hear about the ridiculous one first, or do you want to hear about the useful one first? <laughs> I think I've seen in your Twitter stream recently the ridiculous one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we start with that. <laughs> yeah, this is the smaller of the two projects. I am working on a synthesizer module. And for those of you who don't know what modular synthesis is, they're like synthesizers, but instead of one you know, big keyboard that has a bunch of knobs on it. You know, you have a little enclosure and you put individual modules in it and then you patch them together using little patch cables. And that's how you make your synthesizer make sounds. I'm building a module um, that I call the Big Honking Button. And it is a module that has a Sanwa arcade button like you would see on like the Street Fighter arcade cabinets. Okay. And when you press that button, it honks. It makes a goose honk. Um, it's completely useless, completely ridiculous, and I love it. It's it's great. <laughs> but I, I'm lying a little bit because it's not completely useless. Because it's actually really cool because it's a it's a sampler, right? I mean, like you press the button, it plays a sample, and it's going to be running Circuit Python. So you can plug it into your computer via USB, and then you can replace the sample with whatever you want. So if you actually want to use it for real samples, like you know a snare drum or a bass drum or something like that, you can just put that file on the big honking button and it becomes a big honking button that does something other than honk. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's, I like that idea that it's like, this is a, this is a starting place <laughs> and this is what, you, what could exist on it, but you could definitely go in and by looking at the code, figure out what you could replace inside of it and kind of make it your own. Definitely. That, it's kind of like the starter of a soundboard of sorts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's like a soundboard, but it's just one button. I love it. It's it's great. It also has pitch control, so you can make it 
higher pitched and lower pitched. And it's really funny to do that with the goose sound because, you know, goose honk is like honk. Right. And like when you, when you lower the pitch, it's like this demonic goose is like honk. <laughs> it's right. so great. It's so great. <laughs> um, is it somewhat inspired by the, the game? The Untitled oh, Goose oh, Game? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. That's great. I think we were all inspired by Untitled Goose Game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I, I recently did the Xbox Game Pass thing to try out a bunch of different games. I was so excited that it was on there. I'm like, okay, this is great. I'm actually kind of excited about their little, the developers and their company, Panic, are coming out with a little portable game system. I'm very excited about what that's going to be like, too. Yeah. Again, kind of physical hardware. <laughs> yeah, I, I love hardware. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So where are you in the progress of creating that? Yeah, I'm actually making pretty good progress on that. It's a it's a small board and it's um it's not super complicated. And actually I made this for a reason. So I'm not just making a honking button just to have something that <laughs> that makes noise. <laughs> I wanted an excuse to like implement specific input and output circuits basically. Okay. I hadn't yet designed a a circuit that did audio output from circuit python. So I wanted to do that. And I hadn't yet designed a circuit that took pitch control voltage into um into circuit python so i wanted to kind of do those two things all right and this was a, a simple way of doing that where i'm sort of at with the project is i've designed the schematic and i have designed the circuit board i have prototyped it on a breadboard and i've started doing mechanical design to make sure that like the the button and the circuit board and the panel all fit together so that i can start actually physically making these things now so my sort of next steps are to get the circuit board and build one so that I have like, so I can test the actual hardware and then finish designing the panel. And in terms of designing the panel, that means just putting some art on it and, you know, putting some, some text on it that says, you know, this jack is the audio out and this jack is, you know, the, the pitch control in and so on and so forth. Right. Okay. You know, it's actually pretty close to like kind of being done, I guess, you know, there's, there's a long iteration time when it comes to hardware that is very different from software. So when I say it's close to done, that doesn't mean in terms of time. I mean, it's close to done in terms of steps, right? Like, okay, as you walk down the checklist. <laughs> right, exactly. You're talking about making circuit boards. And that completely fascinates me because I've dabbled with breadboards and even the other where you're just sort of, you know, they're perforated and you're sort of assembling things through it. Oh, yeah. Proto boards. A proto board. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. But the, the idea of stepping up to like actually having someone create a, even a simple board, how, how are you going through that? Like what, what is the software and, and tools that you're using to, to make a board? Yeah. I, I started doing this like literally, I think a year ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more than a year ago because of my, my synthesizer project that used this, the Sega sound chip, right? That's the Genesynth? Yeah, the Genesynth. If I could pronounce it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I actually did that on protoboards, like you said, and it was just too noisy. Okay. And so I, I wanted to reduce noise, and PCBs were the, the way to go. So PCBs printed circuit boards. And I, I cover this a bit in my talk that I gave at um, Hackaday Supercon. Okay. But yeah, so I was like, I, I thought that that was impossible, right? I was like, first of all, I don't have the software to do that or the knowledge to use the software. And even if I did design a circuit board, how would I get it manufactured? Like, how much money is that going to cost? Like, this is a hobby, not, you know, a full-time job. It turns out I was wrong about everything. <laughs> um, yeah. And I love that I was wrong about everything. There is 
an excellent piece of free software called KiCad. So, so that's K-I-C-A-D. Okay. And I followed a, a set of tutorials from DigiKey on YouTube on how to use KiCad. And it was actually pretty straightforward. There's definitely some rough edges on KiCad. Like you can't just open it up and learn it. But if you follow this little 10-part YouTube series, I think I, I, I watched the whole series while I was traveling for work for like two days. You know, I did that and I designed my first circuit board and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, this is hard, but like way easier than I thought it would be. And then I found out there's actually like PCB prototyping services where you can order like five copies of your PCB for $5, basically. I mean, you have to pay for shipping, but they will manufacture your printed circuit board for $5. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, right. And then, you know, I live on the West Coast, and so shipping from China is actually pretty fast. And I think, like, the first time I ordered circuit boards, they came, like, a week later. And I was just like, "Wow, whoa, that's silly. Like, I expected, like, (laughs) you know, a two-month turnaround or something, right? And thousands of dollars, but this was $5 in a week. Um, Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, kind of blew my mind. I think to myself, like, I was in a band in the 90s, and we were like, at the cutting edge of, okay, hey, we're, instead of passing around cassette tapes, we're going to make a CD. And <laughs> and the whole process of making a CD is so much more, at that time, dramatically expensive and cost prohibitive, and you have to make a thousand of them. And yeah. all these things that kind of get in the way of it. And so that was like my immediate thoughts as I said, okay, I'm going to try to make a circuit board. You know, and what if I make something wrong? And I, I can, <laughs> as far as like finding out you were wrong about things, in the best possible ways. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, and I and I feel that way about like revisions I have to do on hardware too. Like for my other circuit python project, I'm on like board revision 5 now. Okay. That's the board I'm actually going to ship. Um so yeah, it took me and I started at V0. So, you know, it's it's taken me several attempts to get this right, but every time I was wrong in the best way, right? Like I was wrong because like I'm going to learn something. Yeah. And that's the whole point of me doing these hardware projects so far is not to make money or be famous or anything like that. It's just to learn. And, you know, as long as I'm learning, I'm happy. And that's kind of how I'm trying to approach these hardware projects. So, you know, six revisions of a board in, I'm happy <laughs> to continue to be learning. You know, it's, right. it's taken time and it's taken a little bit of money, but, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's the other project? Yeah, so the other project is called Sol, S-O-L, and it is a useful project. Um, it is a MIDI to control voltage module. So in the world of modular synthesizers, the way that individual modules communicate with each other is through what's called control voltage. And that's like generally like somewhere between the range of negative 10 to positive 10 volts, basically. Okay. And... These modules use this control voltage to communicate with each other all kinds of things, right? They can use it to communicate, like, turn this knob to, to this value, right? So, like, you know, turn up the filter, turn down the filter, turn up the frequency, turn down the frequency, all this all this interesting stuff. And they can also use it to send pitch data, right? So you can, it uses, like, modular synthesizers use control voltage to tell what pitch that an oscillator should play at. So if you press middle C on a keyboard, that's got to map to some voltage, basically. And I think it's four volts, right? And if you play the C above that, that's actually five volts. So it's one volt per octave, okay? basically. And so if you play, you know, a G, it's it's somewhere in between. So the idea behind Soul is to bridge the gap between the digital realm of computers and MIDI and USB 
and the analog realm of modular synthesizers. So what Soul does is allows you to plug in a USB cable to your computer, and then you can send MIDI data to Soul, and then Soul will translate that into control voltage that you can use to control various aspects of your modular synthesizer. So this is really awesome for music production because you can record your what you're playing as MIDI notes. You can modify them and change them, and then you can play those MIDI notes through Soul, and then Soul will, will use that to control your modular synthesizer. It's really, really powerful stuff. But And there's already modules out there like this that exist, but what makes Soul really, really cool is that it's running CircuitPython. So when you plug it into your computer, you don't just get a MIDI device that you can just send notes to and they go off into the ether and you don't know how they get translated into control voltage. You actually see a thumb drive as well and you can open it up and you can view code.py and you can see exactly how Soul is translating your MIDI data into control voltage and you can change it. Right. And I'm including all kinds of cool example programs of how you can do various things with Soul through that through that interface, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I could think of like, if you've ever wanted a arpeggiator or you want to have all these different things happen that are sort of MIDI-specific things that might have been hard to send to control voltage, um, this is really giving that programmability. And hopefully, if you're a Python person, giving you a tool that <laughs> lets you kind of explore those things. Yeah, exactly. John Park did a really cool video where he um, he did a, he made a quantizer. Okay. What that does is basically it snaps the notes into a specific scale. So like he's like, okay, I'm just going to quantize this to the C major scale or something like that. So no matter what note he played on his on his MIDI controller's computer or whatever through Soul, it would snap it to the nearest note that's in the C major scale. So you can never play out of, out of key. So you can do things like that. You could process the data and make sure that it doesn't go outside of that range or things like that. So there's all kinds of really neat stuff that you can do. Yeah, that's cool. If someone was interested in in this project, and I know it's not completely done yet, <laughs> where would you like stay up to date on it and eventually be able to purchase something like that? Yeah, there is uh, a mailing list that you can join. So you can go to my Twitter and you can click the my pinned tweet and you can find the mailing list, basically. Okay. Uh, we can also include a link in the description here. There's an information page at winter.dev slash soul, and that's W-N-T-R dot dev slash S-O-L. And... You can read all about the project there and you can sign up for the mailing list to be notified when it's ready. In the meantime, it's completely open source. The hardware design, the software, the firmware, everything's already open source and on my GitHub. So, you know, if you're super brave, you are more than welcome to go ahead and check it out. That's totally allowed. <laughs> cool. If we were going to dive a little deeper into using CircuitPython and someone was setting up, say, the Circuit Playground Express. What do you use to edit the, the code there? So I use VS Code, but you can use basically any text editor, right? Like, okay, obviously you have to be like a little bit aware of like Python is white space sensitive. So, you know, maybe Notepad isn't the best option. Okay. But yeah, any, any editor is fine. I think for beginners, the best option is Mu, which is MU. It's an editor specifically designed for CircuitPython and MicroPython. And it's great because it it automatically detects boards. It can automatically connect to their serial ports. You can actually see the, the, the output from the device, like if you do print. Oh, nice. Yeah, and you can also access the REPL from there. So you can, you know, hit Control-C in the terminal 
an, in the serial window, and you can actually access the the Circuit Python REPL from within Mute, which is really really cool. So that's a, a great option for people who are new to this because it's kind of all in one. You know, you don't have to leave the program to do other things. Awesome. So I have some questions that I like to ask sort of weekly recurring things, and I'm working on some new ones. One of them I was thinking about is there's a podcast called uh, Make Me Smart, but I want to kind of take the question they use, modify it a little bit. What's something you thought you understood in Python, but it turned out you were wrong about it? Oh, man, that's that's a really good question. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Probably threading. <laughs> okay. In in my last role at Google, I had a, a very interesting set of circumstances that led me to writing some really heavily multi-threaded code. And it like before that, I was like, I, you know, I know how to use threads in Python. It's it's fine, you know, like whatever. <laughs> you know, and I think my hubris was my downfall. Cause it took me a couple of months to really wrap my head around this and like get this threading code to where I needed it to be. And I think it still has bugs. And, you know, like, it's it's one of those things where it's like, on the surface, it seems very simple. And then as soon as you actually try to do anything beyond, like, the very simplest stuff, it it starts to hurt your brain. So I think the threading is probably my answer for that, at least the, the best one that I can think of at the moment. What are resources you've used to learn more about threading? Oh, God. Um, like, uh, pain and suffering? <laughs> 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 okay just banging your head against it with code <laughs> yeah you know like i i i don't know like i, I think there actually is a, a severe lack of resources when it comes to understanding threading in python mostly because like every time that you see any resource about threading in python everyone's like don't do it and like okay fine but like also sometimes threads are the answer and when they are, we need to know how to actually use them effectively. And so, you know, all of these people who kind of buy into this cargo code of like, oh, threads are bad, aren't actually helping anybody. They're just, you know, preventing people from actually creating and finding resources that are useful. So, Okay. And the other question is, uh, what else are you excited about in the world of Python? And it could be like an event uh, package or, you know, coding tool or some kind of hardware. Yeah, um, I'm actually really excited about PyCon um, US uh, in in April. I I'm speaking, so that adds to nervousness and excitement. Yeah, but also, I mean, just looking at the list of speakers, like and the list of talks, it's going to be really, really good. And I I look forward to PyCon every year, and I am super, super excited about it this year. And there's also some really cool stuff that's going to be in the PyLadies auction that I've heard about. So. Okay. I'm very stoked for that. Really, really excited about it. So what is your talk about? So my talk is actually about Sol. So uh, I'm going to be talking about controlling the world of modular synthesizers using Python. You're going to have to haul a lot of equipment with you. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually probably not going to bring anything with me. Okay. You could just have ways of demonstrating it through video and such. Yeah, just pictures and video. Um, I might, though, because I do actually have a really small modular synthesizer that I brought with me to Atlanta when I visited in January. I stayed in Atlanta for a month in January and just kind of like hung out with family and stuff. And so I brought this like little tiny modular synthesizer that has like five modules in it. And um, I might bring that just so like if if people want to play with it afterwards or something. Okay. You know, give them a chance to to get some hands on time with it. But I don't know. I haven't decided yet. 
is it like in the recording world, they have this thing called a lunchbox. <laughs> it's like a power supply, and then they'll have like a variety of of uh, modules in it. Um, yeah, th- those are kind of leaning toward uh, toward like a you know like a preamp or compressor or something like that, some kind of audio specific thing. Yeah, but, it's kind of like that. Okay, cool. It's not like a. a Trying to remember the guy from Erasure, Vince. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not, it's like, not that like that. <laughs> not, not by any means. I don't have that much money. <laughs> right. right. No. Yeah, or the space probably. <laughs> oh, I definitely don't have the space. <laughs> cool. And then the other question I had was, um, if you listen to music when you code, what type of music do you listen to? Oh, that's a great question. Wow, I listen to all kinds of different stuff, but I think mostly I listen, I tend to listen to instrumental music or music with like very little words or like words that aren't in English. It helps my brain a little bit. Right. So I end up listening to a lot of video game soundtracks, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Some of my favorites are um, Celeste by, by Lina Rain. That's just such a great soundtrack. Also love the Near Automata soundtrack. It's really good. It does, it does have singing in it, but like, the words aren't in English. I don't think they're in any language, actually. Um, <laughs> I think it's a made-up language for the game. And it's really, really wonderful because it's very, like, atmospheric and chill. But at the same time, like, some of the tracks are really energizing. But yeah, I could I could talk a lot about music that I listen to in uh, while working, but those are, those are a couple of my favorites. Cool. Yeah, we'll link to some of that stuff. Awesome. I know you worked with Pi Cascades over the last couple of years. What's your experience working with and being an organizer for Pi Cascades? Yeah, it's honestly been really great. In 2019, I served as the um, the co-chair for Pi Cascades in Seattle. This year, I, I sort of just kind of helped with whatever. It was no longer my job to be the co-chair, so they got to kind of pick and choose what, what sort of things that I, I helped with, which was really good. But yeah, Pi Cascades is such a wonderful group of people. It's such a, like, it's a great set of organizers but i mean really it's it's the community right like we pulled our organizers from the community and the python communities that we have in vancouver seattle and portland are just absolutely incredible and i i think this year was was really really good and speakers and everything were just wonderful i I think it's been good for me because i i I went through some some stuff in my life that made it a little bit harder for me to be on stage and and you know talk in front of audiences and stuff like that for a while and so I still wanted to be involved in the community and I think organizing like helping organize Pi cascades was um a really good way for me to to like use that energy and that desire to be involved in the community without having to be quite as visible right like right I think that 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 helped a lot for me and um it meant a lot for me. And, you know, this year kind of like, you know, just running around, taking pictures and, um, and helping out with whatever was, was really fun as well. If, if you've never volunteered at an event like PyCon or like PyCascades or anything like that, like I strongly encourage people to volunteer. You'll get an, an easy job if you want an easy job. And it's just great to like be involved, you know, like these, these events, these like little regional PyCons aren't like, aren't like, professionally run right like we're all volunteers none of us get paid to do this right you know like i think this community survives and thrives when we all sort of help out you know i strongly encourage people to get involved like you don't have to become a co-chair and take on months of work to be involved in the event you can volunteer you can you can um do all kinds of of cool stuff i think there's these little regional events like you know 300 to 500 attendees are really really special 
and and really important to our community. Yeah, I was going to ask you like how you would get involved with it, but you you hit all those notes, so <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It's mostly a cry for help. It's like, please help, please help us. We need volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just looking at PyCon and noticing they put out that call now for volunteers, and it's everything from like helping people getting their stuff set up, on, you know, on stage to to whatever. So it's not necessarily all going to be spotlight and if you don't have the personality where you want to be right in front of everybody's face, I'm sure they can find a yeah. position for you. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you about for this podcast in general, like I, I'm, I'm new to this and I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat new to the Python community and that's partly why I joined real Python, but I, I want to, you know, meet more people in the community and create relationships in order to get more guests, you know, and so forth. And you had a post the other day on <laughs> Twitter about how, the, you know, you're looking for more women to be involved in these kind of things like, you know, mailing lists and, and podcasts and so forth. And, you know, I immediately reached out to you because I was super interested in what you were doing in, in CircuitPython and, and so forth. But I want to be aware of diversity in what I'm creating here also. And it's something that Dan and I talked about initially also. We we're looking, okay, you know, who are different people that we could could reach out to? And I know you, you did like this very simple survey <laughs> where you're like, okay, tell me people, you know, like literally. But you have followers and you have people already kind of connected there. And eventually, I'm sure that will be something through the podcast I'll build up on. But do you have like advice for me for like, you know, reaching out to people and, you know, like I'd like to talk to Nina. I'm, I'm sure it's something I could just reach out and ask her. And um, partly again, because I'm super interested in this topic, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But do you have other advice for me on, on developing a more diverse podcast, if you will? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that you know, I, I really noticed in my, sorry, this was, this happened like literally yesterday. I tweeted, I like, you know, if you know someone who's awesome, who's not a man, it's that does Python stuff, like mention them below. And like, what was amazing to me, even as someone who's been a part of the community for a decade, is like, there were, there were more names on that list that I did not know than names I did know. And like, okay, even, even someone, you know, that seems connected like me still doesn't know of everyone. And, you know, I think, you know, the Python community tends to sometimes be a little insular in terms of like who it highlights and who gets the spotlight. And, you know, so I, I think my advice is like, seek out voices that aren't already amplified, right? Like, I mean, definitely interview Nina. She's great. Um, <laughs> reach out to her. She'll love this. But also like, seek out people who maybe have never done a podcast before. Seek out people who have, you know, have just done their first talk. Like, PyCascades actually prefers to have speakers who are first-timers. And the way that we sort of encouraged that was we reached out to local meetups and boot camps and stuff like that and said, hey, if you're at all interested in doing a talk, we will come and help you write your proposal. And we will give you speaker mentors um, to help you finish up your, your talk. A lot of times, we have to be a little bit more involved in sort of getting people to the point where where we want them to be, right? Like, you know, and for podcasts, like, you know, you reach out to someone and you say, hey, would you be interested in an interview? A lot of people who've never done this before are going to say no because they're scared and shy, right? Right. And, you know, I think if you have ways of of giving people more support to do this, helps a lot and will help reach voices that aren't necessarily already amplified. So reaching out and saying something like, hey, we're interested in interviewing you for this podcast. If you're interested, let us know. We also offer, you know, mentorship or practice runs or or whatever. Right. Anything that help you feel more comfortable doing it. 
And reaching out to specific communities like, you know, PyLadies is the easy one that everyone points to, but there's other diverse and interesting Python communities out there to reach out to and get people that are new and are different voices. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I was thinking about that in general, like the idea of like, okay, if you're nervous about this, you know, there's a particular person at RealPython and I'd asked her about it a little bit and she was very nervous. I said, well, okay, you know, if I give you a set of questions in advance and then also I was thinking about before I release a podcast, I I really want the person to be able to, to listen to it. Definitely. And let them have the choice to say, okay, uh, actually, could you remove that? You know, or, you know, I, I would like to come back and talk about this again or, or something as far as potential ways to to ease or allay their fears. And I think in a lot of cases, they'll probably be like, it's all fine. You know, like, it's just they were, they wanted the ability <laughs> to be able to say no, which it makes sense, you know? Yeah. I, I appreciate that. When we When we amplify diverse voices, it makes it easier for people who, come from different backgrounds to see themselves in our community, right? Like, you know, it's it's hard for a girl to imagine herself being an astronaut if there's no women astronauts, right? Like, I wouldn't say it's hard, but like, it's it's harder, right? Whereas like, if you, if you see women doing in like, you know, non-binary people and black people and, you know, other people of color, like doing those things, it's easier to imagine yourself doing that community. Like, you know, it's like, you know, people have this idea that tech is like, all CS graduates, right? Right. I, that's why I'm very open and public about like my education background is because, you know, if you see someone who doesn't have a CS background in tech and they're successful, then you can see yourself if that's you, right? Right. As we do that and as we amplify these voices, it becomes easier for us to create a more diverse community and have more diverse voices in here. So, you know, I think we we should really celebrate that. Awesome. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. Of course. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. So that's where the original recording ended. But after a very eventful month, I decided to have Thea come back on and talk a little bit about some of the things that have happened, the changes for PyCon this year, moving from being in person to being online only, get an update on how our projects are going, and a very cool additional announcement. And she also helps to answer the question that we had last week. So here's that conversation. Hey, Thea. Welcome back. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to bring you back to talk about some of the things that have happened in the last, well, month or so that since we talked. Yeah. And the first off is some really cool stuff. You were making some real progress with your Winter Bloom projects. So do you want to talk about those? Yeah, definitely. I'm really excited because I think by the time this podcast episode comes out, my online store will be open and people will be able to pre-order the CircuitPython-powered your rec modules that I've made, which is really great. Yeah, it's 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 so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, the hardware has been finished for a couple weeks now, and I've mostly been waiting for finishing up some stuff around like the business side of things, like my branding and making sure like th- that all the suppliers that I need for all the components are are still working and stuff like that and ready to go. And yeah, so it's so exciting. Like I I get to open the store and like. A week or two, which is super cool. Nice. I, I I saw maybe it's an initial pre-order for the button one, but the other one's going to be ready too. Yep, they're both going to be ready, which is so cool. All right, fantastic. And then some other kind of really cool news is that you're announced as one of the Python 2020 Q1 fellow members, and I'd like to learn a little bit about that. Yeah, it's I was so unexpected and really 
quite an honor to be a PSF fellow. Yeah, I, I didn't even know I was nominated, of course, and just like out of nowhere, I checked my work email and I had an email from from Ava that was like, congrats, you're a fellow. And I'm like, what? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's was, it was quite honored. It's pretty amazing. So it's mainly an honor of mm-hmm. what you've been contributing to the, the PSF in general? Yeah, it's kind of a way of acknowledging people who, who go above and beyond for the Python community. There's there's a, a long list of fellows for good reason, right? There's been a lot of people who have been instrumental in making Python what it is today. Sure. Yeah, it's it's basically just a a way for the PSF to acknowledge people who are outstanding in the community. And I am I'm in very good company <laughs> in that in that list. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm really honored. That's cool. So I wanted to talk a little bit about PyCon 2020. You know, since we spoke, it's been canceled and they're sort of shifting some of the talks to be online. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what, what your plans were as far as your talk and if you were planning on doing it or not. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to hold off on my talk for now. I gave a lot of thought into giving it online and I I think I'm just going to hold on to it and maybe give it at a regional conference next year when things have hopefully cooled down. and maybe do something else for PyCon next year. And, you know, there's a lot of personal reasons for that, but I'm so sad to see that PyCon get canceled, as most people are. Yeah. I don't think anyone's, like, thrilled that PyCon got canceled. But, yeah, and I'm also just, like, now's the call to action to say, like, you know, the PSF depends so much on PyCon for its income, basically, and to allow it to do all the things that it does, which is wonderful things like give grants to all kinds of places to do good things and make Python better and make the Python community better and do things like education and put on events like PyCascades. It's so important. And, you know, definitely, if you were planning on coming to PyCon, try to donate your ticket if you can. And if you are able to donate to the PSF or encourage your company to donate to the PSF. Yeah, that's a good time for that. It's it's such a good time for that. Yeah. It's so sad. Like it's it's sad for so many reasons. And I'm glad the PSF is in a, a state where they can weather this storm at least once. <laughs> right. Right. I'm really looking forward to to next year and hopefully things will be better. Yeah, I've donated part of my ticket for that. It's such a important source of funds for them every year, right? Yeah, and it's it's so important for the community too. And I would hate for something like PyCon to to not happen because of that, right? Like, there's no reason that, like, it makes all the sense in the world that PyCon would not happen because of some global pandemic. <laughs> it right. doesn't make any sense at all that PyCon wouldn't happen because of financial reasons, right? Like, sure, there are very rich companies that use Python, and we need to make sure that, like, that continues to happen. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I had this new listener question. I played it on the last episode with Martin, and it was from the Teaching Python podcast. If you were going to be learning, Python, starting over from scratch today, what would you do differently? How would you approach learning differently? Wow, that is <laughs> that's a deep question, right? Yeah, totally. Like I, I'm, Martin and I are kind of fairly new, like only a couple of years in, and I know people that have been learning Python longer, and I wanted to get somebody, you know, a little more veteran than the two of us to say, okay, well, actually a lot has changed in, you know, maybe the number of years that they might approach it differently. Yeah, the thing is, like, <laughs> I don't even remember when I learned Python the first time. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, it's hard to say what I would do differently. I I can tell you what I would what I would do 
if I were learning Python today, which is yeah, probably take advantage of a lot of these like actual courses for learning Python, right? I mean, like I don't remember how I learned Python, but I can guess, right? Which was basically downloading Python and reading documentation and hoping for the best, right? Just copying and pasting <laughs> code and yeah. just trying to to guess at how things worked and then, you know, later fixing my broken assumptions. But in this day and age, like there are wonderful online courses and video courses and things that just give you a much more guided and like thorough introduction to what Python is and how to use it and how it works and all this stuff. And that's absolutely, I think, the way to go, right? If I were going to learn it today, yeah, I would not do the the absolutely silly method of <laughs> just go read the documentation and hope for the best <laughs> that I did. Right. Hope it sinks in. <laughs> not that the documentation is bad. It's just a, it suits a different purpose, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. There are some people that can think at that programming sort of level. I had a question recently in comments on real Python site and the person, I don't know why they picked me out specifically, but they, I guess they might've liked my other courses or me talking or something. Some real technical question about how Python passes information by references and this whole like super, super tech. I could tell this person is just a person who's from another language, you know, (laughs) like they've been working in the world of, you know, C or, or some other kinds of languages and now are suddenly have the opportunity to pick up Python. And they're like, talk to me like a programmer. So I sent them straight to the documentation. I sent them to the Python site, highlighted these paragraphs. I'm like, this is, this is the kind of stuff that's going to make sense to you because that's the terminology you've been using. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like trying to map it to your mental model of how you think the world should work. Right. Right. And everybody learns so differently. People talk about that. And I, I know it's sometimes considered a myth, the different learning models, but I think like you said, with video, or even for me, like reading something, watching a video, you know, trying out a tutorial and then using all these different senses really helped me, you know, even just, I was downloading all the podcasts I could about Python at the time to <laughs> bring in these other choices. I'm a very audio person though, but <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. Cool. Hey, I want to thank you so much for coming back on to do this little bit of follow-up on the state of uh, <laughs> current affairs here. Absolutely. It's it's amazing how much things change in like a month. So Yeah, exactly. I'm happy to come back. Well, thanks again. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. I want to thank Thea Flowers for being my guest this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>